All right, why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. So, uh, a couple things before we jump in. Uh, we've been in a series for, uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have people that would love to get your Bible. Uh, we've been in a series for a lengthy amount of time through the book of Acts, uh, just going verse by verse through that. And then we took a break, at eight weeks to be exact, to go through another series that we just finished Last week, that was called The Image of God, and uh, looking at how the image of God, re- you know, we think about the image of God in relation to a lot of uh, different ideas within culture at large. You can go to our website. All the messages are available on there as well to check out. Um, but what we're going to be doing now, because we're moving into Easter season, Lent, um, we've actually already been in that season, uh, but because Easter's coming up, it's time to celebrate the resurrection. Uh, what I wanted to do over the next four weeks, is, uh, which also includes Easter Sunday, is to take a look at kind of another series. And I can't honestly ever remember in our history as a church where we've kind of bounced from series to series. So um, I, I, I wish I can apologize and say sorry for that, but I, I just honestly feel like these are ways in which God has kind of been leading us, uh, even though it's been a little bit discomforting for me. Um, I want to get back into the book of Acts, and so I'm excited about that, but that won't be until after Easter. But I want to talk a little bit about why and what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. Um, we're going to be basically be doing this little mini-series. Um, if you want to think of it this way, there are a series of four meditations um, on some really important theological ideas that really, for the most part, the church has been built upon throughout its history. The four big ideas that we'll be taking a look at are the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of Jesus. And we'll look at these over the next four weeks, again, like I said, including Easter. So today, we're taking a look at the, su- the subject of suffering, um, in other words, the suffering God. Um, next week, we'll take a look at the subject of death, which kind of leads us into what's called Holy Week, which is uh, from next Sunday through to Good Friday. So Good Friday, we'll be meeting um, and talking even more at length at the subject of the death of Christ. Um, And then thirdly, which will basically bring us to Easter Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday, which we'll be looking at the subject of the resurrecting God. And then finally, we'll take a look at the very week after that, which uh, we'll look at the subject of the reigning God. In other words, the idea of the ascension, that uh, action that Jesus does where he rises up in the clouds. If you've ever wondered about that, it's a very important part of Jesus's ministry, sort of the capstone of it all. And again, each one of these things, I would say, are so important, so essential, so central to the Christian understanding of who God is. Um, I didn't want to miss this opportunity prior to going into Resurrection Sunday, so why we're looking at all of these. So today, again, like I said, we're going to be looking at the subject of the suffering God. And the subject of suffering is a really important one. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, it's so central to humanity that every one of us uh, have either come out of a past of significant suffering are currently in a status of significant suffering or uh, cheer up are in the process of going into a life of uh, profound suffering. So we cannot escape suffering. It's all around us. Um, But what we want to understand is how does the Christian worldview actually paint our understanding as to how to deal with the subject of suffering. Um, Literally entire world religions have been built upon the subject of suffering. In fact, Buddhism, for example, was literally built on the subject of suffering. It was built sort of as a philosophical response to suffering. How to deal with the subject of suffering is sort of at central to the idea of Buddhism. But Christianity also deals with the subject of suffering in a very unique way. And that's what I want to take a look at this morning at our time together. So let me pray, 
and then what we'll do is we'll begin by starting by reading the book of 1 Peter, uh, or verse in verse, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18. So let me pray, we'll read, we'll jump in and get to work looking at this subject. And uh, if you guys have any questions today, like uh, we've done for the past eight weeks, I'm going to try this out again today. We'll see uh, how this works. So if you guys have any questions today, you would like to either ask and or upvote. Uh, there's a brand new code up there, so we'll jump into that. And if we have some time at the end, uh, give a little bit of time to answering some questions. So let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, right now we pause, and we ask that you would just open our hearts and our minds to reflect upon, to meditate, to think, to consider who you are, what you've done. And God, we pray that your word would begin to shape um, our understanding of who you are, what you've done for us. And God, through understanding Scripture, God, that we would begin to look at our life um, through a lens that you give us, not through lenses that we have muddied up or soiled or ruined or have uh, been soiled by the world around us. But God, we want to look at this life, look at the subject of suffering um, through the way that you have given to us. So God, open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts, and have your way in this time to reshape and transform our hearts and our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And uh, it's a significant passage. I'll give you a little bit of background of this in just a moment. I'm going to read this actually out of the Amplified Bible. Uh, so it says this. For Christ suffered once for our sins, the just for the righteous, for the unjust and the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, he uh, but made alive in the spirit. So what I want to look at today are basically four things, four ideas that kind of address the subject of suffering. Uh, first question I want to really look at is uh, the reality of God's suffering, the fact that God suffers, and uh, we'll try to make an argument for that. Secondly, uh, the reason for God's suffering, why, if God suffers, why, what is the source of God's suffering? Thirdly, the extent of God's suffering, and then ultimately we'll take a look at uh, the comfort that we can ultimately derive from the fact that we have a God that, that suffers. Um, uh, like most things that we do here as a church, our aim is not data, it's not more information, it's not just simply giving you some stats and figures and concepts and theological ideas, but really the ultimate aim is so that the information that we have given to us would actually melt and transform um, in some ways, deconstruct um, false edifices that we have built in our hearts and then reconstruct uh, a life that is not only pleasing to God, but one that rightly reflects Him. So that's, that's the big idea that we're going to try to uh, look at this morning um, surrounding the subject of suffering. So let's first of all take a look at the big idea, which is uh, the reality of God's suffering. We see that kind of clearly within that little passage, uh, 1 Peter 3.18, the very first phrase where it just simply says this, Christ suffered. Now, just think about that. Just meditate upon that. Like I said, this is sort of a, a meditation. Um, think about the reality of this. Christ suffered. Who's Christ? He's God in the flesh. He is God, the incarnate God. You can say God suffered. Just pause and, and try to wrap your mind around that. Because it's easy for us oftentimes in our modern sensibilities, in our modern world, to kind of think of an idea that's more in consistency with the concept of a deist uh, God, 
meaning that God created all things. Maybe God got things going. He wound the clock up, but then he backed away and went to some other far-off distant regions of the cosmos, and there he resides completely indifferent, completely cold, completely uncaring to your stuff that you're dealing with. That's not the picture of the Bible. The picture of the Bible is actually Christ suffered. God suffered. This is really profound because he, again, like I said, is not cold or distant or indifferent to your suffering, your victimization, your hurt, your pain. But in fact, quite the opposite. God cares. There's something to uh, the reality of our pain, our suffering, a hardship that we go through that actually God has linked himself to us, to our suffering, to our painful existence. And what we want to look at now is the next question, which is, or next idea, which is the reason for God's suffering. Like, why has God suffered? What has led him to his suffering? So again, take a look at the little passage that we just read in uh, 1 Peter, uh, verse 18. Again, it just simply says this, for our sins. Christ suffered, little phrase, for our sins. So whatever Christ's suffering uh, was brought about, whatever caused it, it was connected to our sins. Now, what, what is sins in this context? And so what we've been talking about for quite some time is the idea of sin has oftentimes been caricatured in our modern-day world to only think about sin as being nothing more than a misdeed. Bad action, bad ways of living, bad actions that you're doing. Now, sin does involve actions and activity. But first and foremost, the way that the Bible oftentimes defines or describes sin or thinks about sin is it's not just so much sin as an action, but sin as a power, sin as a force, sin as an animating entity in our lives by which we are trapped, we're bound, we have a disease, if you would, and we're unable to somehow rid ourselves or to shake the disease off. We are bound by this powerful entity in reality. It's similar if you're... uh, I've watched, you know, Star Wars or other uh, imagery that oftentimes plays this picture that there are these forces that have impact over our lives and we are linked to these things. We don't know how to break ourselves off from them. But we oftentimes see the reality that in Scripture is that God sees sin as this force that he comes to undo and break and destroy without breaking and destroying the host, us. And so what we see this idea is that the reason for God's suffering is somehow linked to for our sins. To kind of get a better understanding of how this is linked, um, we've got to go to an Old Testament story to kind of introduce our thinking a little bit to the heart of God. So, for example, in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, I'll read some passages to you guys out of this book. If you're unfamiliar with the story, um, God basically is describing his relationship to Israel. And one of the things that he points out is throughout the story that we'll read here, there's a couple different metaphors that kind of play into the storyline. One metaphor, the common one that we're going to read right now, is an image of of a father uh, training his young son how to walk. Um, But one of the predominant images and metaphors in the book of Hosea is a a husband and an unfaithful wife. Not just any unfaithful wife, but a wife that's actually a prostitute. And uh, if you're familiar with the story, it's about a guy by the name of Hosea. He is the, the, the prophet who writes this book. And uh, God actually orders and tells Hosea to go do something that's profound. He says to Hosea, I want you to go out and marry someone. Go marry a prostitute. So Hosea marries a prostitute. And uh, within, obviously, the relationship, she's constantly being unfaithful to him, as you would imagine. But 
The problem is, is Hosea falls in love with her. He's devoted to her. And so he wrestles throughout the book of, should I divorce her? Should I do with her what you should rightly do? In other words, what Justin would say to do. Should I divorce her? Should I rid myself from her? Should I banish her? But the problem for Hosea is that he's wrestling with the reality, of, but, but he loves her. So this is sort of um, emblematic of how God is with his people Israel. This is sort of a, a living parable, if you would, um, of how God is thinking about his relationship with Israel. So listen to how the book of Hosea begins to describe this. I just want you to listen and hear kind of the heart of God as he describes the scenario that's playing out. Verse 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is obviously a reference to the Exodus. God says, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. So imagine a child, you're calling your child, and you're saying, come over to me. And the child's more, you call the child, the child runs away. looks at you, sort of obstinacy on his face, like a two-year-old might have, and just runs away. This is what God's saying. The more I called Israel to myself, the more Israel turned and left and ran. And then God says, the more I called, the more they ran away, and they kept sacrificing to idols. Now, the picture that God uses here, and we've talked about this a lot in uh, years past, but the concept of idolatry in some ways, in many ways, in a lot of ways, is actually foreign to us as a progressive, modern type of civilization. Because we tend to think of idols as being like little statues, little things that people bow down to, little things that people devote their time and energy to or burn incense to and whatnot. And so we tend to think of like countries, maybe like India um, or places like that, that might actually still have uh, idols to this day. They still do. Um, and we distance ourselves, and we think, well, this is not applying to us. But the way that the Bible actually speaks about idolatry is behind every idol, behind every carved image, whether it be out of wood or stone or whatever, is sort of a power. This power might have to do with some form of um, reality that the image embodies. So, for example, in ancient civilization, in ancient Israel, they had like these little idols called Baals, B-A-A-L-S, and then Ashtras. Uh, so the word Ashra actually is linked to the word um, Easter. We get the word Easter from, that's a whole other story, um, Ishtar. Um, but it was also linked to a, a, a goddess of fertility. And so if you ever wonder, like, how does the Easter bunny and eggs and all play into the concept of Easter, linked, linked that way, the idea of life, the idea, um, so you can imagine why the early church kind of adopted similar ideas with regard to that life and so on. But the point that I'd make is this is that the idea of uh, Ashtar and this little statue that people would worship was linked to this, this fertility goddess. And so the real power behind this little statue was not so much a statue, but it was the action, the devotion, the desire to have what the goddess offered, sex and satisfaction and maybe children and uh, heritage and legacy and so on and so forth. And so the people of Israel are devoting themselves to that. Now, again, we as a modern culture, we don't worship the idols. We've kind of uh, circumvented the little um, you know, images and the carved ideas and concepts. And we've just gone straight to the ideas themselves. We've gone straight to sex. We've gone straight to power. We've gone straight to money. We've gone straight to success. We've gone straight to all of these other things that they are depicted by way of idols. But the same is true for all of us. We all have these things that we devote ourselves to. Over God. We take good things that God has made and designed to help us flourish, to help us find life, to help bring joy to our hearts, and we turn them into ultimate things or things that are like God, that take the place of God. They're counterfeit gods, if you would. And so what God says is that my people, they keep sacrificing to these idols. 
So rather than being devoted to me, rather than being in love and honestly giving themselves over to me, they are uh, being dishonest and giving themselves over to these false entities. Verse 3 says, yet it was I who taught them to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I bent down to them and fed them. In verse 7, it goes on with the rest of the story. He says, my people, they're bent on turning away from me. How can I give you up O hand, or hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows. So that last phrase where it says, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows, um, there's a lot of different, depending on the translation that you have, it translates it differently. There's not like a uniform translation there because uh, the Hebrew that's used there is really difficult to translate. There's no simple, simplified type way to translate it. But something along the lines of, it's a description of God describing the type of inner turmoil that he's feeling. way that we would describe it is God saying, I'm suffering. What's God suffering over? Well, to put it short, it's, for the sins of my people. But it gets a little bit more descriptive in this story because it's more complex than than just simply actions or activity of people. So the story of Hosea kind of reveals to us something about the heart and the character of God and the desire of God for humanity. So it goes something like this. So God wed himself to the people of Israel because God loves human beings. God loves his people. But what's happened is his people, rather than love him back, and show honor and respect and kindness and generosity back to God, they've turned away from God. So the image of uh, God being married to the people of Israel is an apt image. But the point is, is that when two people are married, and when there is some form of infidelity on one spouse's or both spouse's behalf, what's happened, by definition, is an injustice has been done. Something of an injustice has transpired and happened. And that injustice has actually called, caused a fraying or a breakdown or a destruction within that relationship itself. So in other words, it's not enough to just simply say, sorry. That injustice has to be redone or rebuilt. Some form of justice needs to be put back into place. Uh, because it's been wounded. It's been uh, corrupted and destroyed and hurt. So... Yes, sorry plays into that, but it's more than just simply saying a cold, indifferent form of I'm sorry, and injustice needs to be acknowledged that I, my actions, have done horribly wrong to you, and I'm deeply sorry, and I want to do whatever I can to make it right. That is the process. Now, that process, if you've ever been in that situation, you know that it's painful. It causes suffering. So here's the dilemma God is in. On the one hand, an injustice has been done, his people, whom he's done nothing but right for, good, kindness, he's taught them to walk, he's protected them, he's been a shelter, a refuge for them, he's done all of these good things for them on their behalf, and yet Israel repeatedly, over and over and over again, has betrayed Yahweh's love. So on the one hand, uh, earlier in the book of Hosea, God is kind of wrestling, you see God wrestling it by way of song uh, that the poem uh, basically describes. On the one hand, God's contemplating divorce, Now, no one can criticize God for that because divorce would be the right thing, right? Uh, And and, and injustice has happened. God's contemplating, should I just divorce Israel and be done with her? And this whole thing climaxes to right here where God's saying justice would call for divorce. But the dilemma is God says, on the other hand, 
I love her. I don't want to banish her. I don't want to cast her off. I don't want to throw her into exile. I don't want to be dismissive of her and run from her or abandon her. God says, because my love is driving me to want to be with her. And so the question, what we see God wrestling with in this whole story is deep suffering that transpires on a level that's profound. This is what we see God dealing with. If you've ever been in a situation like this, you know how profoundly painful this is. And this would be a great description of suffering. So we see God in this situation. The reason for God's suffering obviously has to do with sins. But it's more than just simply sins. It's the fact that God loves those who are committing the sins. But his justice is also crying out for justice. Justice needs to be done and injustice has happened. And yet the dilemma is there. God is suffering. But it's not until we move to the New Testament that we begin to see the extent of God's suffering, which leads us to the last thing. Isaiah chapter 53, uh, we see sort of uh, hints or echoes kind of of what God is suggesting will one day happen. And so what's taking place in the life of the people of Israel is this profound injustice. So rather than Israel loving God and respecting, I mean, all the right things that you would expect. If someone comes into your life and they give you a free ride through college, they pay $40,000 of your entire tuition, they buy you a brand new car, they give you a house to rent, they give you a house to own, you have been given everything and yet we turn our backs on such great extent of love That injustice has caused a great brokenness in that relationship, a betrayal. And so what we see here, God is saying that my people, my people Israel, no no matter how much I've loved them and shown kindness and generosity to them, they have constantly walked away from me. Even though I call them, they've turned away. And so God says something by way of this injustice needs to be made right. And so what God basically foretells to this prophet Isaiah is that one of these days, someone will come and bring about the correction of the wrong to make it right. And this correction of wrong into right will bring about profound suffering that's incomprehensible. And so God talks about a prophet, uh, through the prophet, that one day one will come. So next slide. Take a look at how this kind of plays out in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, when God describes what's commonly known as a suffering or the suffering servant, he says he was despised, whoever this person is, he was despised. Now we obviously know who he is, but he was despised and he was rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And as uh, one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed and we esteemed them not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, but he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. So there was these uh, rumblings or these echoes of one day someone would come and bring about justice. And the way that justice, God's justice comes is not just by bringing about destruction, but oftentimes God's justice is about bringing redemption, making right that which is wrong, not just simply crushing the wrong, Yes, crushing the wrong, but ultimately not leaving it there. But to go into the next step of bringing about reclamation, restoration, healing, wholeness, or shalom. God's aim is always that. It's never just destruction. So when we think about God as this angry, vengeful God that is out just to destroy the wicked, you have not fully understood or comprehended the full story. 
God's aim is healing. Yes, there will be those that have turned their back and rejected God, and God, we're told, one day will give them what they ultimately want, which is an eternity without him. And that is dreadful. In fact, it's actually described as hell. It's described as coming undone, a fraying, a falling apart, dehumanization in the ultimate sense. But God has come to rescue people who are trapped in this power of sin. And the way he's going to do this, as he tells us, is through the suffering servant that will come. Now, if you've ever known somebody who's gone through tremendous suffering in their life, maybe uh, it's uh, some form of victimization, or something has been done to them, they are a victim of a great crime, some form of great tragedy, uh, and they're dealing with the effects of that, or maybe it's drug usage, someone that has been overwhelmed and overcome by drug addiction and their life is coming undone and falling apart. If you've been around somebody like that, you know that it's very painful, it's difficult to be around because you cannot be around that person without any length of time transpiring without you carrying their own shame. In other words, the pain they carry will at some point become your pain. The difficulty that they're carrying will somehow become your difficulty. The grief they carry will then become at some point your grief. You will share in their grief. You will carry that. You will bear that up by way of helping them. And this is what God's saying, is that my servant will come and he will bear their grief. He will bear their oppression, their pain, their sorrow, their suffering. He will pick it up and he will carry it. But it's not until we come to the New Testament that we begin to see the extent to which God said this would actually take place and take shape. So take a look at the phrase, uh, Christ suffered. Again, think about that. Again, Christ suffered. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Here's a couple passages to think about. It says that Jesus began to show his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and that he would suffer. Now, obviously, his disciples were shocked by this. They didn't quite understand Jesus' mission. They saw him as a great miracle worker and an amazing teacher and someone that made great food. But they never dreamed of him as being one that was going to die. That just did not fit their understanding, their reality of what a Messiah would be. But Jesus was not like any Messiah that they had ever dreamed of. The Messiah figure, the Messiah reality that Jesus was embodying was an entirely different king. It was not a king in the order of Pharaoh or Caesar or Nebuchadnezzar or you or I. Jesus was a king in the order of Yahweh. And the type of king that Yahweh is, is he's one that comes and not multiplies their pain, but carries it. He's one that comes and not sh- sh- is shocked by their suffering, but comes and lifts it. This is the type of God that we see. So in Matthew chapter 17, verse 12, it says, Also, the Son of Man will certainly suffer. So Jesus is describing the suffering that he will then bring upon himself. He's without question our echoes. That Jesus is dropping, he's, like in, he's dropping these hints. Or I like to think about hyperlinks. Jesus is dropping hyperlinks all over the place that would link them right back to that passage in Isaiah 53. Just in case that they were slow and able to catch on, what Jesus is saying is that, look, the suffering servant, that's me. I'm the one that has come to bear the grief and shame and brokenness and oppression and sin of the world so that you can be given life. Uh, I love the passage out of the message in John chapter 1, verse 14. It's a passage oftentimes gets read during Christmas time, but he describes it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood and says, and we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Think about this. 
This is what the Bible story is all about. Now, if you were God, for example, you were God, you created this, all that we see around us. If you were that artistic and that beautiful and that generous, and yet your creation had gone horribly awry, turned its back on you, shut you out, said it wants nothing to do with you. If you were like any of us here in this room, we would either, one, operate on some level of vengeance where we would just simply obliterate it and destroy it, or we would back away and remove ourselves far off into some other distant part of the cosmos, but not Yahweh. What God does is he comes full force into the slums, not to, de- not to destroy it, but ultimately to move into it and ultimately to bring about renovation of it all. That God moves into the neighborhood, not destroys it, not shuns it, not ignores it, not as apathetic towards it, but comes into it in the fullness and suffers alongside. This is the story of the resurrection. It's the story that precedes Jesus' great feet on the cross and from the grave. John Stott, a scholar from England, describes it this way. I've read this a couple weeks ago, but it's so good. Just listen to it again. He says this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche described as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Just that line alone, think about that. In a real world of pain, how can you worship a God that is cold and indifferent to it? Imagine that. Imagine saying we worship a God that doesn't care about the suffering or the plight or the challenges or the hardship or little children that are trafficked. How can we worship a God that is cold and indifferent to suffering of humanity? It doesn't make sense. But that's not the God of the Bible. John Scott goes on to say, he says, the God I worship, that lovely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, stamp another mark, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. What he's basically saying is that seeing Jesus on the cross, seeing the extent of suffering that Jesus took upon himself, that does not give you answers. And I'm going to repeat this. That does not give you answers as to why you are going through the suffering that you are currently going through. Please hear me say that. When people and Christians give cheap answers saying, just trust God and he'll give you the answers, that is false. God does not always give answers. Sometimes he may, but most of the times not. Seeing Christ suffer for us does not give you the answers to why you are going through the personal suffering that you're going through. But what it does do, it, can, it shows us what it cannot be. It shows us that God cannot be immune or unmoved by your suffering. Because he moved into the neighborhood. He took upon flesh and blood. He bore pain. To those that have been betrayed, he knows what betrayal feels like. To those that have borne shame and felt shame by someone sinning against you, he knows what that feels like. To those that have been a victim of someone else's abuse, 
he can relate. He's not a God that's cold and indifferent to our suffering. He's a God that's near. Literally, he is Emmanuel, God with us, as opposed to God absent. He's Emmanuel. And in closing, I want you to look at one final thing, and we'll finish here. The last thing that we see is that there is a comfort that ultimately comes to us from God's suffering. It comes in two ways. On the one hand, it shows us that we are not alone. We're not left to try to figure this out on our own. Secondly, it shows us that we are not unknown. You are not anonymous to God. Your pain, your suffering, your hardship, the struggles that you're going through are not unknown. You are not some unknown human being just drifting through space unknown to God. God knows. God cares. This is what Dorothy Sayers, I've read this before, it's a great quote. She describes it this way. She goes, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He, God, had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game that God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life to uh, in the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it all worthwhile. Why? Because of love. He loves you. This is the shocking reality of the gospel. He's not indifferent to your pain. He's not cold. He's not uncaring. He deeply loves. And his aim is to somehow rid this planet of its soul-destructive, sinful power and actions without destroying the host that carries the disease. You and I. And that's what Jesus has come to do. Finally, I want to finish with this quote from the book of Hebrews. It's a great passage. It says this in chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For, he did not, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he is without Sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Again, it's a reiteration that because we have this God that is not distant or foreign, the idea of suffering is foreign to him, but he's a God that understands suffering in the most profoundest sense in Christ. He's able to help us. We're not unknown to God. He loves. He welcomes. He invites. And our response is always one that God invites us to trust him. And when someone is cold and indifferent and just simply offering platitudes and ideas to our pain, we reject that typically. But when someone comes alongside us and wrestles and carries the same type of suffering and pain that we go through, that's someone that we can trust. That's what the gospel tells us. That's the story of the Bible, is that we have a God that's come near. So, my encouragement to you is to think about where you're at in the idea and the concept of suffering 
and how you bring this in relation to God to trust him. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a few moments to answer some of the questions that maybe you guys have either voted in and or upvoted, and then we'll finish with a couple songs of worship. Sound good? God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you, God, that in Jesus, that you fully, completely can relate to the type of pain and the suffering and sorrow that we've gone through, that you, as Scripture says, uh, have been tempted on every way just like us, and yet you are without sin. The God, the same power that was within Christ, moving, motivating, power, empowering him to do what he did to live in obedience to you, God, is the same power that now lives in those that call you Father. So Lord, help us now to see the depth of your love in the circumstances of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.